This is the Creative Life Show, celebrating being highly creative in a less creative world. I'm Joanna Peters, coach and mentor to professional creatives and creative professionals, and I talk to other creatives, innovators and thinkers about how we create, face down our critics, stay on track, get noticed and paid, and do the work we want to do. And I'm sharing the progress of my own book, all about creative people and how we thrive. Hello and welcome. So before we get started with my guest today, a word about books. If you get my regular emails, you'll know that recently I've been sharing books that are particularly relevant or interesting to creative people. So I've just started on the website Goodreads what's called a bookshelf. It's called Books for Creative People and it's going to be a home for the books I'm reading, the books I've written about and reviewed. It's a mixture of some really classic books and much more recent ones. And it's not just going to be the obvious books on creativity. If you've seen the ones I've been recommending, it's a real mix of perhaps classics that you might have missed or wondering whether to read and books that are not directly about creativity. But I'm looking at them and saying, why would this be relevant or interesting to you as a particularly creative person. So with summer coming up in the Northern Hemisphere, it's a great place to find some holiday reading or gifts ideas or for your next birthday. You can find it at goodreads.com. Now, the best way of finding it is to go into Friends on Goodreads and search for me, Joanna Peters, and Peters is spelt P-I-E-T-E-R-S and add me as a friend. Now, there is actually another Joanna Peters with that spelling on already. I was shocked that never happens, but I'm the one in the pink shirt. But if you don't get my emails, why not? Quite a lot of the ideas, the tips and the resources I share only ever go out to my email community. So come over to creativelifeshow.com or joannapeters.com and sign up. One of the reasons I love supporting and working with creative people in their life and their work is that we don't like boxes. Most of us with enough time and money would be following all sorts of different creative interests. Now, if that's you, you are going to love this episode. Hello and welcome. Today's conversation is for you if you have way more interests, skills and things you want to do than the rest of the world can really get their head round. My guest, Wakas Ahmed, is the author of The Polymath. It's a book that flies the flag for living a life that's all about multiple areas of skill and interest. He's a great example of it himself. His career so far includes time as a diplomatic journalist and political editor, a fitness trainer, investment analyst. He's artistic advisor of the Khalili Collections, which together are one of the great private art collections in the world, as well as being a practising fine artist himself. And he's currently completing postgraduate studies in neuroscience, where he's investigating the treatment of chronic pain. Wakas, welcome. I'm used to people with crazy biographies on the show, but yours is particularly diverse. Do you ever have one of those days when you think, I should just go and get myself a conventional job? <laughs> Thanks for having me on the show, Joanna. Yes, yes and no. In the past, of course, I started off with what you might call conventional careers, day jobs. And like many people, I would argue, I felt a little disillusioned by the way my life was going the reason why on earth I needed to be in that kind of environment, which I felt was quite constraining, it felt rather outdated to me, given that we'd 
emerged from the industrial age where everybody had to clock in and clock out and focus on one particular task, one particular job for all their time and try to progress within that, but within certain confines. So for me, I sort of uh, saw life a little differently. And so therefore, any stint I did have is as a conventional day job was rather short lived. Did you expect that when you went into each of them? Yes. Well, it's actually what you've listed kindly in my biography is a mixture of what you might call day jobs or stints as day jobs, but also what you might call portfolio careers. So at any given time, it could be that I was studying something and studying that alone. Or it could be that, for example, you mentioned when I was working as a fitness trainer, I was doing that alongside studies as well as other jobs as well. So it's never really been a case of me doing one or the other. It's kind of been either sequential or simultaneous, depending on what a period of life I was at. So what does it mean to you with all those different strands of interests and expertise to lead a creative life? Well, it means everything. I think one of the main reasons for our existence is to create. And of course, that means different things to different people. It comes in different ways and the scale is different depending on how big your ambition is. Uh, but um, the creative life, I feel, is something that can be applied. And I know you've explored this through various podcasts in the past. It can be applied to various contexts, ranging from you know, the mother bringing up their children or even a father bringing up their children to somebody who's leading a FTSE 500 sort of organization or somebody even leading a country. Whatever the context, creativity is at the heart of any kind of progress. So for me, whenever I have engaged in different projects, different jobs that might be seemingly unrelated, I always felt that there were inherent connections between them. Even if I did not see those connections immediately, they did appear implicitly or explicitly. And it's that knowledge that actually creativity comes from fresh perspectives, new experiences, unrelated fields, domains, clashing, fusing, synthesizing, that I felt that actually I was on the right path, at least for me. And that's a big theme in the book, isn't it? That that being a polymath is about having specialism in so many areas that those connections can come in, that they all feed into each other, that they make a whole, then it's almost sort of bigger than the sum of its parts. But before we go into that, the question I ask all my guests, and that is to take us through an example of when you have hit creative challenge of some kind. So can you talk us through it? So when I had left university, and had done a master's degree, I started a very conventional job as a management and communications consultant. And it had all the standard um, conveniences of early professional life. But what happened was during the course of this job, although it was interesting in many ways, I felt that my creative disposition was not being un untapped and it was not being explored in the ways that it could be. I fought with myself. So this creative challenge actually was initially with myself and then with society. Feeling I had boxed in, hemmed in somehow. That's right. And again, I think a lot of people will be able to relate to this. Some people are able to break out of it, others less so. But for me, it was very interesting because I was confused as to whether 
this is something that uh, was valid and something that was right or something that was just a passing fad and that I needed to get over it in order to get on with my life and my career. What happened was it just wasn't working for me, that particular lifestyle and that career was not working for me. And so I felt, okay, I need to be true to myself. What myself was at the time was somebody that was interested in a variety of fields, ranging from science to art being wider fields, but more specifically visual art and painting and cognitive science and neuroscience. That sounds very clear. But at the time, were you able to articulate it so clearly? I'm doing this, but actually all these other things are my real interests. Yeah, so articulation of that to myself became clear, but then to others became the big uh, challenge, I suppose. When I had revealed to family members on the one hand and then to other members of society that were close to me, meaning my work colleagues, my friends, they were not able to relate to this creative urge I had to, do, to be creative in other fields. Yes, yeah, so what you're describing there is something I think that's quite familiar to creative people who have also been achieving in a very conventional field, in that you get mm-hmm. into the situation where you're, sort of, you're taken on for your sort of intelligence and expertise, but actually so many jobs actually don't allow that additional that scope. I think you, you make the point in your book that employers are often quite wary to employ creative people or people who have many areas of interest. It seems a bit threatening. I know that's something I relate to. What, what did you do about it? Well, I quit my job. I had to take that leap of faith because I knew that this would be a rather misunderstood feeling by employers, well, my employer at the time, for sure. My work colleagues, absolutely. My parents, although, of course, parents generally try to be supportive when they can, but where they feel that something is unfamiliar, and of course, this whole phenomenon of the polymath or multiple careers, multiple interests being pursued is alien to a lot of people from a particular generation. And it's something which I hear a lot from people saying, I wanted it, but my parents said no. That's right. And I was was lucky in the sense that my parents were generally supportive because they had a general confidence in my ability and my ambitious nature. So I didn't, ha- I didn't face too many hurdles. It was just sort of I felt I needed to prove myself, not just to them or to friends and to other colleagues, but most importantly to myself. So that's what I did. I quit my job in order to set out to prove myself. And I didn't quit with a plan either. It was uh, just with an intuition, and that intuition had to manifest itself somehow. And that's when I started, as you listed, that's when I started embarking on my journey into various fields, uh, starting with the arts. How did you start your journey into arts? You hadn't studied art. You You think you studied economics. That's right. So I studied economics. I did a master's in international relations. And interestingly, the phenomenon I just spoke of, which is sort of a skepticism of somebody if they're kind of moving away from the field which you associate them with, also exists within the academic or the university life. So when I studied economics or, and I studied international relations, people on my course went into, uh, had a very particular career trajectory which they associated with that discipline. So when I then went off to relive my passion for painting, namely oil painting, 
a lot of people just simply couldn't understand that. So I reconnected with the canvas and uh, the oil paints that I had um, already many of, and I sought um, various uh, sources of inspiration and just started painting. Right. And where did that lead? Because it's led to all sorts of things. It did lead to all sorts of things. But uh, initially, it was just a mode of um, expression for me. So I was obviously had a lot of frustration that had built up within. So I needed to express myself in different ways. So I produced some works. One of those works was was acquired by a major art collector, which gave me a lot of um, confidence. But even then, I did not rely upon that to for a living. I knew I had to, at least for that moment, explore other things in order to continue making a living. So I started to work as a journalist. That was very interesting. It was I started work as a diplomatic and an economics journalist, which did fall in line with my academic studies. So I knew I could draw upon my background in those studies in order to get that day job. That day job also allowed me to travel extensively around the world. For the next five years or so, I lived in 13 different countries. So you can imagine the artistic inspiration that came about from so many different cultural contexts. So I continue to produce works of art in addition to pursuing my career as a diplomatic and economics journalist. So you went back to a day job of sorts, but actually it was something that did allow you to escape from that box. It had much less of a box around it. That's right. And actually, there are careers, there are so-called day jobs and conventional careers where one could exercise their multifarious nature or their polymathy, so to speak. Within the book, I refer to these as polymathic professions. And those are professions that inherently or intrinsically require you to be multifaceted and holistic in your approach to your given field. For example, if you are a business leader or if you are a business leader, a chief executive, for example, that requires of you knowledge of various domains within your organization, whether it be various sectors that your uh, company is operating within or whether it be different aspects of the company, marketing, finance. So if you are an aviation company, for example, it will require you to have a sufficient knowledge of the way uh, your engineers work on the ground, as well as the way that product is being marketed, as well as the way the finances of the organization are being dealt with. And so that synthesis of different dimensions and aspects of the organization gives you a very wide-ranging knowledge and expertise. Let's, let's talk more about polymaths and what it means. Now, my guess is that listeners to this show are going to take little convincing of the benefits of being a polymath. Let's just take a moment to really define how you, what, what you mean by a polymath. Sure. So a polymath is somebody that is exceptionally versatile and as a result excels in multiple seemingly unrelated fields. And I say seemingly because as later becomes apparent, you draw connections between those fields that you wouldn't otherwise see initially. 
And this book is full of these extraordinary stories. I mean, right back over the centuries and the millennia on really all continents. So, so one example is Jose Rizal, a Filipino poet. Now, he, he was murdered at 35. So it's a bit of context here. So he trained, mm-hmm. I said he was, he was a poet. He trained as an ophthalmologist. He became a kind of anthropologist. He learned 20 languages. He was a revolutionary poet and essayist against the Spanish colonists in the Philippines. And he fought formed a revolutionary organisation. So that would be enough for most people. But he was also yeah. an accomplished painter working in various mediums and was particularly skilled, it seems, as a sculptor. And he also managed farms, created regional maps, played the flute, took part in fencing and chess. And this is all in, in 35 years. That's right. There are so many people from the book I could have pulled out with, with stories like this. And on one level, it's enormously inspiring. On another level, it can leave... It's easy to feel a bit intimidated by it. Well, I can't possibly achieve on that level. But you're not saying that, are you? You're saying that that being a polymath is something we can and should all aspire to. Why should we? What does it bring to our lives? There are two dimensions to this answer. One being the benefits to the individual, to ourselves, and the other being benefit to society as a whole. So let's start with the individual. Now, human beings are inherently multifaceted by their nature. So this whole idea, this whole notion that we should spend the majority of our lives uh, focusing on a subject or an occupation exclusively at the expense of all these other facets that we have, emotional, spiritual, physical, intellectual, and so on, let alone various aspects to our lives which could involve motherhood, fatherhood, it could involve mentorship, it could involve a variety of other things. So it's undisputed that our lives and our innate nature is multifaceted. So then comes the thing that we ought to be true to our innate selves. And how can we possibly do that in our work, our study environment, and in our lives in general? So I would argue that actually the polymath is the state of being that we are most self-actualized. So self-actualization does not come about until we are able to actualize ourselves in our entirety. So it doesn't matter if you were able to achieve great things in a particular field, that doesn't make you self-actualized. There are various aspects to your being and various unlocked potentials which need to be discovered and need to be pursued and need to be actualized. So what I'm suggesting is that actually the polymath is probably the closest you'll come to that form of self-actualization and therefore fulfillment as an individual. So for our happiness and our well-being, then actually we should all be aspiring to be skilled or at least competent or knowledgeable in multiple areas, because that's actually how we're wired to be. Yeah, so skill is one thing, but pursue multiple areas. Yes, absolutely. It is true that some people have uh, an innate ability to do, be more skilled at one thing than the other. But how do how many of us actually go through the process through our upbringing and uh, through our education? How many of us go through that process of discovery where we really do truly understand what we're skilled at or what we're interested in? Now, even that's in our youth. What about during the course of our lives? Even later in life, there might be a new experience that might unlock a particular ability, talent, interest, 
which you may never have envisaged earlier on in life. So this process of self-discovery, ongoing self-discovery, will inevitably unveil various facets of our being. And that means that we inevitably will pursue various fields, whether we consider ourselves polymaths or not. So that's focus on the individual. We can move on to the society. Why should we be polymaths? Because society benefits. About a third or more of this book, as you know, is dedicated to a very particular thesis or proving a very particular thesis. And that is that polymaths have been the most influential people in society over history. I had to do five years, 10,000 hours of historical research to prove this point, where I pick out a variety of the most influ- who are considered to be the most influential people in various fields, looked into their lives, and lo and behold, we find that their lives are much more diverse and multifaceted than we give them credit for or than we know them for. I think that's one of the really key points, isn't it? I think whoever you are, there will be numerous people you've never heard of simply because your reach is so broad. Ninth century China to 18th century, all periods and all areas. But very often they're names which we know from one area. We wouldn't necessarily count them as a polymath because we have come across, I know, Charles Darwin. We, we think of him for evolution, not the other things he did. We were talking before, I said, one character that jumped out for me was someone called Edward Heron Allen. Because as far as I'm concerned, he wrote a really influential book on violin making. But actually, that was a sideline to everything else he was doing. So it's not necessarily about being public polymaths. Are these people influential because they had the kind of brains and the energy to drive themselves forwards? Or were they influential because that breadth of knowledge allowed them to think and come up with new ideas and approaches? Well, many of these polymaths over history have actually attributed much of their success in their core fields to the breadth of their background. And um, we can just talk about one particular uh, study that was done of Nobel Prize winning scientists over the course of, I think, about 80 years or so. It was found, again, for me, intuitively, it made sense, but a lot of people would find this surprising that the majority of those scientists whom we would have considered to be micro-specialists in their field actually had a variety of avocational pursuits and hobbies, even other careers prior to becoming scientists. It was a lot more diverse and varied, and many of them have testified to the importance of that diversity to their core field. And, and this is, of course, backed by, it's increasingly acknowledged now in cognitive science, that diversity of experience and background does have a neuropsychological impact on the brain, which enhances creativity simply because, again, we can talk about this, it makes rational sense. So I find that study fascinating. And I'm assuming we're talking about the same one here, which compares scientists who've won a Nobel Prize with scientists who haven't. And the ones who have won Nobel Prizes are way more likely to have been taking part in theatre or music or some other form of arts by you know, large, large factors. Well, also fascinating that idea you've just touched on that actually having many areas allows our brain to create more connections in it, we're using more of our brain, It's if I understand it correctly. So in some ways, it's not surprising that we should be thinking in a more interesting way. 
That's right. The cognitive science and neuropsychology of creative thinking produced many studies and many theories in recent times with mixed success, but all of them allude to the fact that uh, creativity comes from fresh perspectives and fresh and new ideas must come from a different way of thinking, whether that be lateral thinking or creative thinking, critical thinking, that critical thinking must take into account various perspectives. So actually some of the most creative thinkers are considered to be holistic thinkers. So yes, there is a large body of literature and a growing understanding and acknowledgement of the importance of diversity to creativity. But set against that, we're sort of back almost where we started with your story, aren't we? We, we have this culture, I think affects all of us, certainly in, in the West, that says, oh, jack of all trades, master of none, that expects us to go and get a proper job, that slightly frowns on these portfolio careers and the idea that, that somehow multiple areas of expertise equal lack of depth, which in itself is, is bad. How do we manage that tension between expertise and the time taken to get expertise with the the danger, I suppose, of distraction and and too chasing in too many directions? Well, uh, one person that I interviewed, Tim Ferriss, who's a well-known podcaster and writer from mm, the US. Four-hour work week. Absolutely. So he is quite interesting. He has this very interesting post called Why to be a Jack of All Trades. So yes, there is a stigma attached to the jack of all trades, master of none. However, that jack of all trades could potentially become the master of one and use their various experiences in different fields to optimize their performance in their given one field. And there are various examples of of this, especially those that do undergo what I referred to earlier as polymathic professions. So they would be considered, for example, a a corporate executive or a chief executive, or even uh, in the environment of government and politics, they might be a prime minister. But that prime ministership or that chief executive position is inherently multifaceted. And so it will require you to explore the various dimensions of that role and synthesize them in a unique way to make your unique contribution to that role. Well, I think very clearly, if we look at, at the arts and the creative fields that we talk about more frequently here, it's easy to see the benefits of understanding, for example, understanding finance and management if you want to be a filmmaker. So I came from a, a creative writing background and I went to do an MBA because I realised that the people who held the purse strings held the power and no one was ever going to teach it to me. Absolutely. And I think that's it, isn't it? Where, wherever we're coming from, it's maybe recognising that there are a whole load of adjacent fields that will directly benefit us, but a whole load of the fields which aren't adjacent, which will create connections which we can't yet anticipate. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned film because being a filmmaker is a perfect example of this kind of multifaceted profession where, and I mentioned many of them within the book as well, the likes of in the 20th century, the likes of Jean Cocteau and Gordon Parks. And then today you have the likes of uh, uh, Takeshi Kitano from Japan and David Lynch, who actually not only are aware of or knowledgeable about the different aspects of filmmaking, but have excelled in each of them or many of them in their own right, whether it be 
writing the screenplay, whether it be uh, the technical aspects of editing, casting, designing the promotional materials and the artworks for their films, acting in that film itself. So yeah, I'm glad you mentioned film because it's a very it can potentially be one of the most polymathic platforms we have today. And one myth, which I, another myth I'd like to demolish here, is we have this idea, and again, I think it's very cultural and maybe of our time, that having multiple specialisms will be financially detrimental to us. But actually, when we look at it over time and we look at it over different cultures, and even with our own, that is just a myth by and large. So Mm -hmm. whether that's the Indian entrepreneur who runs a corner shop and spends the evening driving taxis and Mm -hmm. maybe maybe she does nail painting parties, we can. Or now the portfolio creative who is in demand from multiple areas because she is a a writer and a composer or, or whatever it is. And the research is suggesting that actually those people typically will make more money after a couple of years than they ever did in their mono specialism areas. So I think it's what's great about this is these these examples, the, the things the stories we've grown up with about the validity of work and careers don't have to apply. No, they don't actually. The career landscape, the job landscape today in the 21st century is very different to what it was even 5, 10, 15 years ago, let alone a generation or two ago. Not to mention the ongoing trends and futuristic trends of automation, machine learning, uh, computerization, and so on, which will affect the job market. I think the larger aspect of what you're talking about is what is the relevance of the human being? And this sounds philosophical, but I'll, I'll get to the point. What is the relevance of the human being to the 21st century in the age of automation? So, With automation, a lot of these so-called jobs for life that used to be jobs for life, where we would micro-specialize on one mundane uh, task and there will be some form of linear progression over time, that has become redundant. And if it hasn't already, it will become so. So what is the value of the human mind to the progress of the job market? We must then seek to understand, actually, what's uniquely human? Uniquely human are aspects of creative intelligence emotional intelligence, social intelligence, which cannot be uh, mimicked or replicated by machines, at least not yet, and it's not envisaged to be so from by some of the leading futurists that I've interviewed within the book. And so we need to understand, okay, what kind of individual is it that has these attributes? So it's clear that somebody that doesn't think in that linear way, somebody that does have a very unique career, which is multifaceted, has different dimensions to it, has its own complex nature, that kind of individual will be the the, the kind of individual that will thrive and will survive this uh, age of automation moving forward. So I would argue that actually the polymer is the most relevant type of human being to the future. So one question about polymaths, are they fearless to, to go out in pursuit of excellence or expertise in multiple areas? They are fearless. Most importantly, they're curious. If you look at Leonardo da Vinci, who's considered the archetype of the polymath in the Western mind, he faced a lot of adversity. Uh, He did not have the socioeconomic status to excel in one field, let alone multiple fields. 
but he had an innate curiosity. And that curiosity overcame any obstacle that he faced in his work environment or in his social environment. And so that curiosity does inevitably build in a kind of fearlessness that you see in many polymaths over history. And that actually, yes, you do still need to have today because we do still live in a very highly hyper-specialized world where things are, where disciplines in our academic institutions are segregated, where you still have div the division of labor in modern corporations and organizations as you did in the post-industrialized factory. You still have this kind of environment which fosters specialization and assumes that that is the way to efficiency and progress. So it, to, to actually go against that, you do indeed need to be fearless. You need to have unfaltering belief in your method to creativity and to progress. And you need to be able to deal with the kind of cynicism and skepticism and even envy that you will inevitably face moving forward. Well, maybe I can just challenge that for a moment, because I think that creativity and fear do go hand in hand. But mm -hmm. maybe in that case, it's the curiosity and the drive. It's other things that are more powerful. Yes, other things are, well, creativity and fearlessness do definitely go hand in hand. I think there are a variety of attributes that I mentioned within the book. One section of the book, I talk about reconditioning the mind which is that you need to actually go through a process of self-discovery to unleash your creative potential and to be at one with this whole idea that you're not going to live uh, the normal conventional life and that you will be faced with social obstacles and so on. Only when you're able to understand that and go through that process of reconditioning one's own self do you develop the kind of fearlessness that is required to excel and also to take on the institutional or systemic specialization that we're facing. We started this conversation with your story about exactly facing that needing to take a decision that was creatively brave, um, yet coming up against, if not opposition, at least questioning and scepticism. Is that something you still have to confront in your life now? Yes. And I know I will inevitably have to confront that unless the culture changes. Institutions, organizations, companies, schools, academic establishments, unless that culture of hyper-specialization that fosters that kind of thinking is changed, then I will inevitably face this uh, moving forward. I'm not as concerned with myself. I know you're asking about me, but I'm more interested in the propensity to pe for people to be creative in multiple ways. So people, the alienation that people would definitely feel through a variety of research, alienation that people are feeling in their current jobs is something that we need to address. And I would suggest that alienation derives from people's inability or actually those environments, an inability to allow those people to unleash their creativity in its entirety. So for the somebody, if you're listening and you're feeling stuck in that way, caught, your job is a bit like your job at the beginning, constraining, putting in that box, not, not allowing you to be creative. What's your top piece of advice? I would suggest that you 
go on that process of self-discovery first. So it could be actually that your disillusionment with your current position or your alienation is a result of something very specific. So you need to look internally first and understand what your strengths, your capabilities are, what your opportunities might be. Then when you've figured out what self-actualization might mean to you, then you will embark on pursuing that in the best way possible. So once you've done that, then what you need to do in a more, on a more practical level is to surround yourself with individuals, friends, people that think similarly. And there are many of them. There's a huge network of people that are creative in so many different fields that you need to get in touch with, reach out to, surround yourself with, partner with, get involved, collaborate with on projects and so on, so that you're amongst like-minded people. And even there are within organizations and leading corporations, you do have managers, recruiters, and so on that do appreciate what we've been talking about. And so those need to be sorted out. Otherwise, you'll be stuck in a situation where you'll have certain expectations of you, which you will not be able to fulfill. And in trying to fulfill them, you will become very unhappy. So that would be my advice. I love that. So first go inwards, ask yourself what it is that's that, well, it's really it's burning to come out and then go and find other people. That's so important. I think in those situations, it's so easy to feel isolated. It's so important to find a tribe. So I'm going to wrap up with a quote from one of the interviews you have in the polymath from Julie Crockett, who's a, well, she's done all sorts of different things, sports person, academic. She says, If you limit yourselves to the things you are safe with and know you're good at in advance, it's short list. If you're willing to try anything once and be mediocre at something, you'll do a lot of stuff. And I thought that was a great sort of summary in a way of saying, why would we narrow ourselves? Why would we limit ourselves to what we can already do when there's this whole big world out there? Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing this. What is your next step in your polymathic journey? The next step in my polymathic journey is I have now been fortunate enough through writing this book to have found that tribe that you mentioned earlier on, to have found that tribe of like-minded people. And it's with uh, these people that I'll be seeking to collaborate with on various projects. So that collaboration might take various forms. It could be film, it could be painting, it could be business, it could be anything. So what I um, plan for myself is to develop a set of ideas and to find ways of expressing that idea and bringing it to life by any means necessary, as long as I have the right team on board. And how can people connect with you and find out more about your work? The best way of connecting is through Twitter, at The Polymath Book, and through the website, which is the-polymath.com. And uh, I'm also on LinkedIn for those people that are interested in collaborating on a particular project. And all those links will be on the Creative Life Show website. So thank you so much for coming and talking about the the polymath. And we look forward to talk about this next things. And well, maybe we'll have you back to talk about these huge range of projects in your polymathic future. Thank you for listening. And have a think. Are you limiting yourself to the things that you already know you're good at? Or are there things out there, things you can't possibly anticipate the results they would have on your life? But by expanding those boundaries, potentially really change it and lift you into that league of people who are indispensable for the future and much more self-actualised and happier as a person.
So lots to think about. And who can you share this episode with? Who's in a polymath and perhaps needs some encouragement? Have a wonderfully creative week. I'll be back with you soon. 